Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. Hello and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. I'm joined today by Fintan O'Toole, who has written one of a number of pieces which we have in this weekend's edition of the Irish Times about the decade from which we are just about to emerge. Fintan, this may be an unfair question because I asked you to write a piece looking back at the decade and what it meant, but do we in the media gain or lose anything by this obsession with slicing and dicing things up into years and decades or even centuries? Is it a useful way of thinking about things or maybe does it get in the way of understanding them? I think it's 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 useful to get us thinking. Um, it, it, and then you have to stand qualified by saying, well, actually, of course, you know, events don't really fall into, you know, zeros and ones and, and, and all the stuff that we like to hang on them. Um, but, but, you know, we don't probably do enough reflection on, you know, what are the long-term things that are happening, you know, especially those of us who work in daily newspapers, you know, we're, we're very much focused on the immediate. Mm. Um, so, yes, it's artificial, um, but but so is time. You know? <laughs> I mean, so our, our, our notion of time. So so we do need some points at which you just sort of stop and think, what the hell is going on here? Um, and, and of course, we know that, you know, centuries don't fall neatly into things. I mean, most historians would talk about the the long 19th century, not not ending until the end of the, of the First World War, for example, mm. you know, and the 20th uh, century ending 20th with century. the fall of the Berlin Wall yeah, and so on. Yeah, yeah. you know, so yeah. so yes, I mean, events don't really fall into these 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 categories. There's a kind of a rough. Uh, maybe we just go searching for these things, but you know, it feels to me like the 80s began with the election of Margaret Thatcher in a, in a political yeah. sense. Certainly, certainly in this part of the world, uh, September the 11th, 2001 was a kind of a, a yeah. key marking point, and it wasn't too far away from the start of that decade. So we think of that as foreshadowing what followed, and. In in the case of the last ten years, arguably it's the it's the aftermath of the financial crash. Yeah. Really, is what defines it. Yeah, isn't it? yeah. There's no there's no question. I think isn't there that that you know that that shock really only begins to be processed in in you know 2010 2011. Uh, you know, even protests, if you think about it, is actually quite um, quite slow to get going, mm. quite slow to take any coherent shape, and. I think if you were to just say one thing, I mean, it's just over, overwhelmingly, you know, simplistic. But if there's one thing that shapes the decade, absolutely, it is. Uh, perhaps you could say actually the failure of of the reaction to the banking crisis, the great banking crisis. You know, um, pretty much everybody assumed that here you had this crisis of capitalism. One of the very interesting things about this decade is it's, it's the first decade for many decades that the word capitalism has been used in mainstream media as a sort of um, analytic tool. You know, it actually describes something which needs to be described rather than just the natural state of things, which has had mm. become in a lot of uh, the, the way in which things were talked about. Although people do also use the word neoliberalism a lot to define a particular sort of contemporary yeah. form of capitalism. Well, well yes, but, but I think what happened around 2010, roughly, is you, you begin to get... The idea of capitalism as a particular structure, which which has been created, which is which is not there forever, and which is in crisis, you know. So, mm. so the idea that this this broad economic system um, is in deep trouble 
you know, it was probably pretty universal in, 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 in 2010. And the assumption generally among, you know, the the sort of thinking, um, chattering class, whatever you want to call them, you know, the people who control political discourse was that this was going to lead to a shift to the left, right? That, that clearly uh, a lot of the assumptions that had, you know, dominated the 1980s, 1990s, uh, first part of the 21st century were wrong. You know, that, assumptions about Thatcherism and Reaganism, then followed by things yeah. like the Third Way and triangulation yeah. and the move of the yeah. of the left to the centre. I suppose precisely the yeah. kind of abandonment, in a way, of, of any idea of a fundamental alternative to capitalism that that was that had been exposed as being wrong. Um, the free market, of course, remember, had been completely exposed. I mean, the free market as an idea, you know, uh, which was you know small states, light regulation, low taxes and let the wealth creators get on with creating wealth and everything will be great. And here we have the wealth creators, you know, suddenly turning around and saying, by the way, you have to pay all this money. You know, mm. uh, uh, there is no such thing as as private um, debt. You know, it, it's, 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 when, when it's when it's of the scale that we engage with, it becomes public debt. So the assumption then was, okay, you know, this is going to see a shift to the left. Maybe not to the sort of the same left, the old left, you know, but it would, it would need to be different. But clearly a need for much more control over the way capitalism worked, much more redistribution of, 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 of income, uh, changes in the structure of wealth. And, of course, none of it happened. Well, yeah. you do have movements. I mean, things like Occupy Wall Street, yeah. the Indignados in Spain, yeah. um, some of the, the the fight back against what was happening in Greece. You know, that's a new form of, of, of street level yeah. and then party political yeah. protest. Yeah, no, when I say none of it happens, what I mean is that there's, there, is no, um, there is no fundamental change in, in, in the nature of capitalism. Sure. You know? So you have this kind of strange thing that you, you, you have this absolute, you know, really fundamental shock seems to change the way everybody thinks about everything. Um, and the system, you know, sort of absorbs it very, very quickly, in fact, takes all the public money, stabilizes itself, and then sort of goes on almost as if nothing had happened. So it leaves then political movements kind of on the outside grappling with this. And 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 uh, I suppose, you know, it's again to be simplistic, the, the, the left-wing versions of that fail uh, don't actually take power, mm. uh, don't manage to really get an awful lot of purchase on on even how big institutions like the European Union, for example, are, are responding to the crisis. Why do you think that was? Um, I think I think there's 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 probably two reasons. Um, one is that, of course, a lot of the, the the conventional left, you know, had had bought into the idea really that that actually it is fine to just let the markets you know, run free and create the wealth. And then, you know, the only left version of that is, and, and then we use some of the money to, to to even things out and to, you know, tackle child poverty or do nice things. Uh, but, the you know, wealth creation is is, is no longer an issue for the left, mm -hmm. you know. Mm -hmm. the, the old left was basically saying, you know, you must control the means of production. You, you know, we, we, the, 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 the commonality must control how wealth is created. The left had kind of the, the mainstream left had pretty much abandoned that, right? So, so it's kind of saying, look, you know, let capitalism go. 
So, was that because of the collapse of state socialism you yeah. know, 20 years previously, that that, that, that idea of controlling the, the heights of the economy was just being completely discredited yeah. by that? You, you know, so you have, you have the collapse of communism, you have to follow the Berlin Wall, uh, which uh, ironically, of course, most of the left wasn't pro-Soviet or, or you sure. know, in, in favor of that model. But nevertheless, it, it, the existence of an alternative, the existence of the idea that there was another way of doing this uh, ha- had a very powerful long-term effect. And when that's gone, I think that, 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 that uh, shifts. But also, of course, you remember that this it's working you know the the that wealth creation in that period is astonishing it's the biggest period of wealth creation in human history you have of course it coincides with with the, the tech boom it coincides with all these kinds of new ways of making things so it it seems okay that these new ways of doing finance capitalism which is actually the thing that's kind of taking over and sucking all the all, all the resources out of everything it, it sort of seems like that, that that's okay too i mean if, you, if you've got these weird things like the internet and, you know, you've, you've all these new technologies coming along. Well, then, you know, so what if you've got, um, you know, subprime mortgages? It's, it's just a new way of, 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 of creating wealth. And of course, it turned out to be a really old way of creating wealth, which is just you know completely parasitic and 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 not uh, actually sustainable. Uh, b- but a lot of the mainstream left had sort of bought into it in a sense, um, and, and had abandoned the idea that 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 wealth creation is is itself a political issue. Um, I think the second big reason, of course, was that uh, the the. Uh, the the movements themselves, although they were they were very powerful, you know, like the Occupy movement, you know, seemed uh, like this is this is like a revolution is happening, but actually failed to cohere around a set of political actions, you know. So uh, yes, they were um, you know very articulate. They were they were they were very. Um, uh, they were right, you know, there was a need for some kind of public demonstration of, of outrage, but they couldn't cohere around like, well, what do we do with this? Like, what, what, what are we actually, what's the, what's the program here? Mm-hmm. And, and in particular, failed to cohere around um, real opposition to austerity, funny enough. I mean, so there were, you know, uh, protests against austerity. There, were, there was opposition in, in the sense of people saying, this is terrible, look what's happening. But no really coherent sense of okay, well, how, how do you reorganize society? How do you reorganize taxation? Uh, how do you challenge this whole this whole narrative of we you know as as an Irish economist put it, saying we haven't run out of compassion, we've just run out of money. There is no money, you know, which of course was should have been capable of being challenged because it was so obviously untrue at a time when vast amounts of public money were being were being put into dead banks you know one of the things that strikes me about that is we we had michael lewis in on the podcast earlier earlier this year and his new book obviously is about how people in the united states don't understand what their government does and how that can have really dreadful consequences yeah, if their government yeah. falls into the wrong hands but obviously he's written previously about the way in which as the as the late uh, screenwriter William Goldman once said, nobody knows anything. Right? The syst- our systems, both the financial systems and systems of, of government, are so complicated yeah. now that for most people, particularly when it comes to making a political decision about what's a good or a bad thing to do, they're kind of swimming in the dark. Uh, absolutely. And, and, and I think, you know, um, different forces were very good at taking advantage of that. So, so on the one side, you had, uh, you know, Say if you just take the, take Europe, you know where 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 we were stuck. Say with the with the ECB's version of response to the crisis, which was initially there is no money, 
you know, and uh, you all have to just tighten your belts. And then without ever articulating the fact that, oh, this isn't working, we've got to go to the opposite policy, which was actually print money. Let's print lots and lots of money, but give it to very, very wealthy people. You know, do it in the form of, of, of um, quantitative easing, so-called. I don't, and it's, it's not saying people are stupid, but quantitative easing just sounds like a sort of um, a laxative or something. You know, it, 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 even the language of what's happening is very difficult for people to actually get to grips with. And... You know, because no government was saying, actually, what's happening in response to this, this crisis is we've just got a huge big machine and we're just printing lots of money on it mm. and we're, we're, we're giving it to people who already had lots of assets. That, that's our response. Since nobody's saying that, you know, it, it's not a political program. It's not being kind of articulated for, for people at all. It becomes very, very difficult to, to, to actually get to grips with it. And then the easiest way to get to grips with it, and this is, of course, what shapes much of the decade, is to say, this is about the people versus the elites. Why was that easy? First of all, because it was sort of true. You know, there was no question but that there was an elite response to the crisis. And it was one which was largely about, you know, um, everything must change so that everything stays the same. You know, let, let's let's find a way of, of essentially keeping all the structures and all the privileges in place. So, you know, if you if you look at this objectively, you have a period, you know, towards the beginning of the decade when... Uh, inequality starts to narrow simply because the very, very rich are losing their, you know, their assets are worth worth less and less. Mm-hmm. Not not because the poor are doing better, but nevertheless, you could you could say, okay, things are getting a bit more equal. And then the pattern that had been established just re, you know re, 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 recommences pretty quickly. You know, so by the by the middle of the decade, th- these gross inequalities in you know where the new wealth has been created is is, is going has been completely reestablished. So it's a very successful. Um, move by an elite in in one way, but its problem is that it's fun, it's fundamentally unsustainable because because it's 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 doing the same things that created the crisis in the first place. So it's 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 doing this grossly unequal distribution of resources. So a narrative then where where some you know, people can come along and say, and you can do this from either the left or the right initially, right? You can say this is the people against the elites. The problem then is that that the the left is not very good at saying who the people are, right? Um, you know, because for good reasons, the left has tended to be uncomfortable with ideas of, you know, the people as one thing, you know, because we know mm-hmm. it's not one thing. And, 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 and you know, do you then start excluding, you know, who's, who's not the people, all that's, you know. And, of course, immigration, is, which is also one of the big stories of, of, of the decade in Europe, is feeding into this too. Whereas the right is very good at this, right? So the right's very good at saying we are the people. And anybody who disagrees with us, anybody who's not with the program, is not the people. And this will culminate, you know, just in recent weeks with 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 Boris Johnson, who who has won forty three percent of the vote, you know, appearing. And this is obviously really planned, you know, his, his victory speech, the people's government, you know, uh, you know. So anybody who didn't vote for us is not the people. Um, and and that that narrative is obviously culminating Britain, but it's been the narrative. Of and Trump I wonder about that. I mean, the counter narrative, the failed as as we speak right now. now narrative to that is the Labour Party's, you know, for the many, not the few. Yeah. And I was always unclear, and perhaps this is deliberate, as to exactly who constitutes the many and the few in this. Is it the, um, I, for example, I find that the theory of the 1% 
um, unhelpful sometimes because it doesn't actually delve into some of the realities of the way that, you know, power and assets and wealth are, are created and held and passed from generations to generations uh, in, in this country and in other ones. But it's an easy one because it means that it's a tiny number of a tiny number of people as opposed to people who you might know or even you yourself, you know, yeah, if you're yeah. older. So that many, not the few thing seems at the part of, part of the at the core of what was the problem with the left that it wasn't prepared to define who who it, it was opposed to. Well, you know, I I would somewhat disagree that the, I think the one percent is sort of useful because it happens to be pretty much true. You know, there's, mm. there's no question but that in recent decades the the, the you know the the grossly disproportionate amount of 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 of, of the wealth created has gone to the one percent. Although, in fact, you could really probably even narrow it down more. It's like to the to the the zero point one percent. You know, it's it's the the one percent of the one percent. Uh, the super rich, you know, is, is is the great phenomenon of our times. I mean, it's 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 this return to uh, these levels of inequality that just hadn't been seen since the 19th century. Um, the problem is not really with, to me with 1%, it's with the 99, you know, because the, the implication is all the rest of us, you know, all the rest of us as 99% are the, are the people and we're all one thing mm-hmm. as opposed to that 1%. Because we're clearly not. And we're clearly not. That's where the problem lies. And this is this becomes problems in relation to things like taxation, you know. It's it's great because it, it makes some sense to say let's tax the one percent, you know. But you also have to tax the ninety nine percent, and you have to tax them differentially, and you have to say you know who 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 gets resources within this. Even if you assume that we start to uh, to, to 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 hammer the the, the, the super rich, uh, it's not enough to to transform societies in in the way in which they need to be transformed. And of course, it it you know. It, it beating into all of this, and of course, is the other big, big story of the decade. You know, which is which is the which is the environmental crisis, the climate crisis. You know, and 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 the, the climate crisis challenges the whole basis of wealth creation. You know, the whole the whole idea that uh, growth is 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 you know, the, the only game in town. Um, and I, I, I'm, I'm not denying that, uh, of course, there's huge economic potential in, 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 in a green economy and in, in, in that, that great sort of epochal shift from, from one kind of economy to another. Um, but, but it has to disengage itself from the idea of, of, of growth full stop. Certainly the way it's been measured up to now. Right? Absolutely. And that's quite hard for a traditional left-wing view to do because traditional left-wing view is always saying, well, look, you know, there's all these new resources, there's all this great growth and, and we just want to share it properly. Um, and that's absolutely right. The problem is you also have to say, actually, you know, but we also have to stop the growth, you know, that, that, that you know, simply growing GDP, which is a whole way in which, you know, ideas of, of productivity have been, have, 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 have been construed for people. Just both both in socialist and in capitalist countries. Precisely, yeah. It's it's sort of agreed by everybody, you know. It, it was, it was, the, mm. you know. Now, to be fair, of course, the green movement has been challenging this for for decades, you know, um, and 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 is now, I think, objectively, unarguably right. You know, you you, you simply cannot continue on a a, a, a a trajectory that is based around using. GDP growth as as the basis for measuring progress and, or even measuring survival. Um, Is so, it fair so to say then that the Green Movement and Green Party, certainly in some countries, have taken on the mantle of the leaders of the left and centre-left because they bring a coherent ideological uh, position, and one may choose to agree with some bits of it more than others, but at least it is coherent and it's all-encompassing in a way that you've just described that the traditional left isn't. 
Yeah, I mean, there's no question, but that the 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 most powerful critique of capitalism comes from, you know, from saying, uh, yes, you can continue with capitalism, but 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 it's 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 lifespan. Is, is limited to the lifespan of the species, and that may be quite short. You know, if we if 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 if, if we carry along that 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 route. So, um, I mean, the left's great sort of claim was always socialism or barbarism. You know, and 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 the the, the green claim is it's it's sort of an environmental revolution or death. You know, and that's actually a more powerful claim. Even you know, people can put up with barbarism. Uh, we we know from from the horrors of history, um, they they probably are ultimately likely to be repelled by the idea of of, of imminent death, which just depends on how imminent it is. Um, so, I think I think the you know the green movement has had the strongest ideological critique. What it hasn't had, of course, then is a capacity to to connect. Very largely with with you know with with the majority of people uh, as a, as a as, as a central central political concern. So most people, you know, there's no doubt about the fact if you look at it over the course of the decades that environment consciousness has risen hugely. Uh, of course, it's also very much maps on to age. The younger people are, the more aware of it they are. Uh, but there's still you know you look at the. British elections at the end of the decade, you know, the Green Party just gets completely squeezed, you know, mm. it's completely destroyed. Well, that's so much to do with first past the post. I completely. Mean, absolutely, I, I would yeah. absolutely with yeah. full assurance say the Green yeah. Party would have got more than 10% of the vote at the very least yes, if they, they had a proportional that, representation. That, that's, that's absolutely true. Uh, but, <clears throat> but, you know, remember that system also functions in, in the United States, for example. You know, for example. It's, it's just mm. impossible for a Green candidate to, 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 to come forward as such. So you need a new kind of amalgam and 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 a, and a new mixture of critiques of how capitalism works, um, and 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 how it might change. Uh, but in a way, the big sort of broader cultural problem has been that so much of the space for, um, you know, for for anti elitist thinking, if you if you, if if you want to call it that, has has actually you know been occupied very successfully by the right. You know, which well, is, we haven't mentioned them yet, but the current U.S. president's line, "The system is rigged." Yeah, it's probably one of the most powerful political slogans of the of the last decade. You know, and and taps into a lot of what you're saying there. <clears throat> but ultimately, success. The people who had most success with that were from the other side of the political spectrum, essentially on the right, and some yeah. cases on the on the neo fascist right. Yeah, you know, I mean, if it if it if it weren't so appalling, it it would be seen as a an incredibly brilliant and successful sort of maneuver, right? Which is to take control of public anger. Um, uh, and to channel it, you know, to 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 say, you know, I mean, it is it's it's a great paradox. It's it's an elite project which is anti-elitist, right? So, so it, it sort of gets out ahead of the game, says uh, all of these elites, you know, of, of which I am I, I am a part. Because remember what Trump says is. I know the system is doing because I'm part of the system. I I understand it. I'm mm-hmm. I'm inside it. Send a corrupt you know, guy to clear up corruption. That's, yeah, that's you know, it, it's it's a kind of brilliant maneuver which sort of says, you know, only somebody from the elite really understands just how terrible the elite is, and therefore you know is 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 in a position to really take it on on your behalf. You know, so this is where the you know one of the, the one of the other big cultural phenomena of the decade, of course, is the rise of the. <clears throat> You know the kind of uh, charismatic, um, you know, all-powerful leader figure, um, 
you know, so, so, and this is a genuinely global phenomenon, you know, whether it's Modi in India, you know, whether it's Trump or, you know, across a lot of, a lot of Europe, a lot of the developing world, you know, the, the return to this notion of the sort of charismatic savior figure. Uh, but, but in, in, in the West in particular, these figures have been able to say, you know, um, you, you yourselves are somehow not powerful enough, not capable enough of, of, of channeling you know your your anger. You're actually powerless. You know you 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 know your your vote doesn't mean anything. Look at you know you've had all these decades of voting different ways and it doesn't make any difference. Um, only a sort of magical figure who comes from with with within the elite can somehow represent the people. You know it's, mm. it's this mm. paradox. But because it's so paradox, it's so it's also very flexible. You know it can adapt itself in 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 all sorts of different ways. And then of course it ties in with. You know, if we were talking just pure cultural terms, I mean, the, the the sort of the great phenomenon of the decade, which is this abolition of the notion of any distinction between yeah, between that, what's that, true and what's that, not true. Let's talk about that because I, I remember. I think it was in early two thousand and nine. I was at an event. Uh, it was with Peter Blake, the the British pop artist, and mm. if so it was attended by a whole bunch of, um, I suppose technology and design students, kind of cutting edge, early adopter type people. And for the first time in my life, I walked into a darkened auditorium. And so these, the sea of tiny, multicolored, bright screens. And I, everybody knows what that is now, yeah. but it was an absolutely amazing sight at the time. Yeah. I always think back to that moment as, for me, the start of the decade that we're living in now, because it's those devices and what they do and our relationship with them and, and the way our relationship with the world has been transformed through them that seems to me to be in many ways the kind of defining reality of this decade and affects not just culture but politics and personal relationships and pretty much everything, really. Yeah, you know, and it, 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 it it's, again, it's been a very paradoxical phenomenon, hasn't it? Because, uh, you know, in a way... Um, I would suggest, and I was trying to kind of get out of that, that piece I've written for you, but, you know, that that the, the ground that used to belong to art, you know, uh, which was the ground of fiction, the ground of invention, the ground of, you know, being able to give you the illusion that you, you were inside somebody's private head, uh, has been uh, occupied from two sides. It's been occupied by... Um, Obviously, by the tech companies, the tech giants, you know, have taken over privacy. The private self is now they claim we own it. You know, it's not. I mean, it's not even this that we're we're sort of using it or or exploiting it. They're saying we own it. We we own your most private thoughts. You know, so we can capture them and we can we can we can monetize them and and we can use them and then we can in turn feed those back to you in in new forms. So that that's been happening, but of course, then also in. In politics, you know, you you, you have this uh, strange kind of emergence of these figures who um, behave as if they're in private when they're occupying public space. So, you know, if you look at people like Johnson or Trump, you know, they're the different persona in some ways, but what they share is this is this sort of apparently unguarded, you know, you know, un, unbound. Mm-hmm. Uh, form of behavior, which is is interpreted by their supporters, by people who like them, as authentic. This is the whole point of it: is that authenticity, bizarrely. So, you know, you're talking about this sort of virtual world that we've we've, we've entered in this in, in, over the course of this decade, and 
one of the you know the paradoxes then is that what becomes very attractive then is is well it's all virtual it's all made up but but the only proof of authenticity is that you you don't behave with any kind of good manners with any sense of you know compassion with any concern for truth mm-hmm. um, just sort of blundering around you know doing whatever comes into your head just letting your id run loose is is the proof that you're actually the one person in this whole world who 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 is real you know although and, of course that's all completely a performance as well oh completely oh, I'll, I'll, yeah. utterly yeah. but it's a very it's a very effective performance you know and uh, you know I, I think trump and johnson are a bit different in that johnson johnson's much more aware of his performativity you know i, I think you know key things to remember about johnson is John, johnson Always before he went on, on on TV, would mess up his hair. You know, this is the only person who would ever do that. You know, and and it's a very, you know, he's been he's been doing this stuff for a very long time. I think Trump kind of stumbled on it politically. I mean, he'd been doing it in in other forms, but mm. but yes, it's essentially the same thing. It is it is highly performative. Um, but but what it does is then it sort of completely narrows this this gap between what we used to think of as kind of art and creativity and imagination on the one side. And political reality on the other side. So, so the political reality becomes more and more and more saturated with, with performance, but also with this very bizarre. I, th- I think this is a new thing. I think this this the idea that um, disruption, bad manners, crudity, um, and lying are the proof of authenticity. I think that's new. You know, particularly with lying. So, you know. The old distinction was um, you were either an authentic person or you were you were you were a liar. It's now the fact that you are so obviously a liar is what makes you more authentic than all the other liars. You know, so 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 once people become disengaged from the idea of democratic politics, they start thinking, well, they're all liars. Every single thing they say, everything they do, is a performance. So the person who's obviously performing is 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 truer than the rest of them. And they're, they're, you know, because they're all lying. The person who is obviously lying is 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 someone who's actually, you know, somebody I can trust. And you know, this I know it sounds absolutely ludicrous, but you, this is what you find in in focus groups where they look at they ask people about Trump or about Johnson. You know, what they but they don't they don't say yes, he tells the truth. They say I I I know he's lying, but that's just him. That's the way he is. You know, or in one way, know, the attraction say, of that though is just is a simple reaction against. Being ruled by technocrats for a generation, isn't it? It's just giving some kind of an alternative yeah. to those polished new labor uh, robots, basically. Uh, it it, it, it seems years. real, and, and again, see the, the, the whole power of, of course, is that you know that none of this would I mean, be there, but it wouldn't it wouldn't have this profound effect on, unless, of course, as you say, it's connecting with something real. I mean, if you think about it, Ireland. I mean, we were effectively being ruled by the European Central Bank for for five years. Uh, the, the IMF and the European Commission, to some extent, put this effectively by the European Central Bank. I mean, who, who do we know in the European Central Bank? Like, what you know, what what mm. you know, people might know the name of of, of Jacques Paul Trichet and then and then and then Mario Draghi, but like, I mean, who who are they? Like, what you know, what what's our connection to them? So, people are beginning to feel that you know that there's there's been a complete loss of any connection between themselves and and the people who are making these huge decisions for them it, it, they're not making it up you know it's it, it it absolutely has been real and that sort of technocratic response of course was was austerity you know it's it's not like it's abstract it's it's 
you know, who who is the person who is making your life more miserable? Well, it's actually not even a person. It's just it's just a necessity. It's you know, we, we all agree, don't we, that we've run out of money and that we have to do these things. So of course, you know, the the, the blundering, uh, you know, ubu ra kind of persona coming into this, you know, saying, you know, the system is rigged. They're all liars. They should all be locked up. Um, and it's all gone to hell, but I can save you. I alone can save you. You know, that's you you, you you kind of suggest in your piece this weekend in the in the Irish Times, which is which is as I say mostly on a cultural focus, but you kind of suggest that what you've just described there, the move to this form of everything's out there to see, yeah. can be seen in the broader culture as well. Like you draw a comparison between the the major TV show that defined the last decade uh, and the one that defines the decade we're just coming to an end now. And one is The Sopranos, and the other one is Game of Thrones. Yeah, I, I you know you can always read too much into these things, but that's that's my job is reading too much <laughs> into things. So so it is, I think it is interesting, isn't it? If you, if you, if you think about you know the previous decade, I mean I, you know the touchstone of of well, so if you say the big thing that's happened is the long form TV show, right? That, you know, in terms of our culture, you know, mm. that's probably the biggest single shift, and the biggest bit of that in in in, in the previous decade is is the Sopranos, you know. And if you look at the Sopranos, it's it's actually it, it in some ways everybody says, oh, you know, the violence and the sex and all this stuff is all new, but the basic structure of it could have been written easily in the nineteenth century, like it could be an Ibsen play, or you know, it could be. You know, some, I mean, Sigma Freud would have recognized it completely because it is purely Freudian, right? So it's all about, you know, psychoanalysis. It's yeah. all about um, the inner life, you know. What, and, and so the whole drama is, you know, we're, we're sucked into the inner life of this monster. His outward actions are, are, are horrific, but the, the inner life both in the sort of ordinary sense of family, you know, he's an ordinary guy. He gets up in the morning. He has his cereal. He drinks his coffee. He worries about getting his kid into college. And then he goes and he does these horrible things. That sort of contrast between the public and the private is where the drama is. But then even within that, then there's the sort of classic conflict, right, which is, you know, the unconscious mind uh, and, and and how it's playing out. And, mm. and you know, li- literally this, this is sort of clinical, right? So it's taken into the, 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 the clinician's room. Uh, the consulting room, you know, and we and we, we we get to see what's really behind the trauma of Tony. You well, know? we get to meet his mother, which is really mother, and, you know, and all that stuff. So it's and we get these flashback scenes to his childhood, and you know, mm. so it's a in many ways, you know, it's it's almost continuous in some ways, like with Greek drama, right? So, you know, there's there's a hidden thing that that is internal. Um, the truth is really about what's going on in somebody's mind. It's not really out there, you know. Uh, so Oedipus doesn't really know that he's married his mother, but by God, he's going to find out, you know, that's the drama, you know. Mm. And and Tony doesn't really know that his 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 mother has made him, you know, uh, 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 psychopathic, you know. So you've got that con- that continuity. Then you move forward to, to, you know, the last decade that we're talking about. And the... I think most people would agree that the kind of touchstone in in that field is Game of Thrones. Game of Thrones, doesn't that give a good goddamn about your internal feelings? You know, like, you know, nobody has, you know, like the idea that, you know, Jon Snow or, or Daenerys is, are, are going to go to, you know, a, 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 
uh, Jennifer Melfi to find out <laughs> what's motivating them. We know what's motivating them. So, so one thing that shifts is this whole idea of motivation, right? So, so the the old narrative, which the Sopranos is still part of, is you know to understand what's going on. We must must need to understand what motivates people. Game of Thrones says, well, what bloody what motivates them is power, sex, and violence, right? And, you, and it's all out there. It's all on the screen. There's no mystery at all about why people are doing what they're doing. The, the the story is just how is this going to play out between between these forces? So uh, they're, they're they're completely different ways of thinking about. Is that a degradation? Uh, I I don't like to think in those terms really. I mean I, I think just culture shifts, but it 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 it, it is it is very striking. I think because it, it it raises a, the bigger question, right? Which is is what's happened to this idea of the inner life? Mm. You know? And we mentioned this already about you know. So much of certainly Western culture, and we're really talking about hundreds and hundreds of years, right? It's about developing this idea of the private self. You know, what's going on in somebody's mind is as astonishing and as rich and as mysterious as the constellations of the universe. You know, I, I was citing in the piece of writing, if, if you just think about something like War and Peace, for example, right? Which is, you know, magnificent cultural touchstone. It's also breathtaking, right? Because it basically proposes. I mean, half the book is about Napoleon invading Russia, right? This huge world-shaking event, which is described in fabulous detail and battlefields and you know maneuvers and generals and Napoleon and the Tsar and everybody's in it. And the other half is about like Natasha and her love life, you know, and, and this this obscure rich young girl and what's going on in her love life and her emotional life, uh, and. It proposes, you know, because the whole book is ludicrous unless we're certainly willing to accept, you know, that, that actually, yeah, that's true. That actually, you know, what, what's happening in, in, in a young girl's inner emotional life has the same kind of drama as, as you know, Napoleon invading Russia. And this, this is really, you know, that's a culmination or maybe it even goes even further than with, I suppose, Joyce takes it further in Ulysses where he says, look, you know, I'm, I'm, I, we as artists can, the one thing we can do that nobody else can do is we can take you into that inner life and we can recreate it for you, you know. So, you know, Leopold Bloom may, may be a fictional character, but, but when you read this book, you're going you're gonna to know, you know, you're going to know him better than if he were real, he could actually know himself, you know. So the stream of consciousness that's, that's going on, we, we get to sort of pin it down. We can go back over it and read it. He doesn't. He's just kind of living it. And so that whole idea of the inner self is is so crucial to Western totally culture. Totally bound up in Western culture. And I may be digging too deep here for a podcast, but what the hell Christmas is almost upon us. There's uh, Listening to that, it strikes me. Before those iPhones we talked about at the start of the conversation were invented, there were some very smart people thinking about what changes this new technology was going to bring to us. And one of the phrases that was bandied around a lot was that it was a Gutenberg moment, Mm. that the unforeseeable outcomes of this deep change in how we communicate with each other and therefore order our societies would be as profound as the invention of the printing press. And of course, we know that after the printing press, you got, you know, the you got the Reformation, you got literacy, you got the Enlightenment, you got democracy, you got lots of wars and things as well. Yeah. You basically got what uh, what people now call disruption yes. on, a, on yes. a massive scale. And I wonder maybe when people look back at this decade, will it, will that be what it is seen at is the kind of the pivotal decade of the start of that transition. And what some other smart people have suggested in relation to that Gutenberg thing is actually that it's not necessarily our Gutenberg moment, the one we're in at the moment, is not necessarily a transition into a, uh, a more sophisticated, better, next level in some ways. It's a destruction of the world which the, uh, which, which printing uh, invented and a reversion to some kind of prior world. And as we know, many of those prior worlds weren't particularly attractive. Uh, you know, 
Increasingly, I think I think we have to at least contemplate that that possibility, you know, uh, and and it does come back to this this you know maybe the great the great achievement of humanity, right? Is is the idea of the unique individual, you know? Uh, I mean, all real progress, right? You know, things like human rights, things like equality, things like you know women's lives mattering, children's lives mattering. They're all based around this idea, which is partly religious. You know, it's, it's certainly very strong in, in most of the world's major religions, but it, it develops through the Enlightenment and it develops through, you know, the, the, through science, through, through, you know, things like, you know, Freud, part of this, you know, but this idea that within each of us is, and it kind of shifts from being the, the, the individual soul, you know, to being the individual mind, you know, this bundle of sensations and thoughts and stuff that's going on all the time, which is 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 explosive and, and endlessly rich. And therefore, you know, the implication of that is, well, if you, if you extinguish a person, right, you're extinguishing a, a whole universe, right? That's sort of at the basis of, of of a lot of civilization, you know. And what's happened in the last ten years is that you you have two particular companies in particular, you know, the Facebook and Google. And Shoshana Zuboff's book, uh, The Age of Surveillance Capitalism, I think is a very important book on this. You know, she uses the analogy of saying, you know, it's it's it, it's very like what happened in the so-called age of exploration or the you know, the age of conquest. You know, when when Western powers start to land on a shore somewhere in in you know the coast of South America and say, put the flag down, we own this. You know, it's it, it's astonishing when you think back now that over the last ten years, Google and Facebook in particular have been allowed to say. We own the entire world of data, you know, of your data. You know, it's, it's, this belongs to us with no legal basis, no, no political basis, no, you know, it's, it's, it is as outrageous as, as, you know, as, as, um, you know, Christopher Columbus saying, you know, oh yeah, we, we own all these people. We own all this stuff um, because we say we do. And it's been allowed to happen with, with really very little, Reflection. I mean, you know, there's been some thought about it, but but re- political reflection. And so, what are its implications? How, how how does this affect us? If if what we're being told is that actually, you know, we don't own anything we do online, whether it's private or public. There's not there's no distinction. It's it's all public because it can all be turned into data. And, and then that data in turn can be used to shape our desires to actually interfere with our with our personal selves, um, and I, I, I don't think we know what we're doing. I mean, I really don't think we we have a collective sense of of, of how this is happening, um, and it just gets more and more outrageous, you know. So, so we now find, for example, Google being given the medical data of fifty million people in the United States, not data, but actual, you know, actual like named people. I mean, it's not even, you know, it hasn't been, you know, stripped of its of its. Uh, Identifiers. Yep. I mean, it's actually yep. you know, specific. I mean, if somebody had said ten years ago, you know, we're talking about like the, the change in the culture that that you, what I mean, you're going to hand over the most the things we would think of as most personal to ourselves, right? our mm. medical records. They're going to be handed over to a gigantic multinational. And the genius of that is that everybody probably ticked a box allowing that somewhere, although or most people did, you know, because of the way the thing is rigged. The genius of it is is that Orwell had a nightmarish vision of a listening device in every home and people are buying them and putting them in their homes, you, well, know? you know. It's it's, it's very interesting because we you know we just been through kind of a, a Orwell centenary, you know, and I was thinking about it a bit and and uh, one of the things that's very interesting when you reread a bit of of, of Orwell, you know, is that in Orwell, the fear, of course, is the state 
it's 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 the state that is the yeah the invader of privacy is you know it's going to take over the idea of individuality is and is going to be you know conducting surveillance on everybody all the contemporary time. China yeah um, but but it, but what Orwell did not and could not foresee was that actually the the major motive um, the major motors of this shift would be private companies, which in a way is even more. I mean, I'm not saying contemporary China is not. Um, extremely alarming and of course it's where you get the dovetailing of, of the state and these private companies but e- 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 even if you just look at it in terms of what we still think of as the western democracies you know I mean the way in which Google and Facebook have have, have acquired astonishing monopolistic and unaccountable power over our private lives and have been able to construct these systems of, of surveillance uh, you know I, I've just the other day I was, I was uh, traveling on a bus Bus, air, and bus, and I, I, I downloaded the app. I mean, just to say, you know, is the bus coming or not, right? And I suddenly realized, I, I, if I didn't click a certain thing, like the, like the bus timetable app was, was saying, we have the right to check your location at any time, even when you're not using the app. Now, what on earth? Like, how, how did we ever get to that mm-hmm. point where, you know, that everybody is, is assuming the right to conduct you know, 24-hour-a-day surveillance on all of us all the time unless we opt out. And then even the opting out is is, is, is becoming increasingly problematic, you know. Um, so, uh, you know, these are obviously very large questions, but but I, I think it's it, it's done something to our sense of the the private self, you know, the, the idea that actually uh, the, the, the individual is a thing of extraordinary value. And that the individual is is unique and sovereign in, in some kind of way. I think we've pretty much got rid of that over the last. The That's course pretty last bleak. Uh, <laughs> for a final question, and maybe the answer will be will be bleak as well. If, as we come to the end of these ten years, whether that's a meaningful um, slice slice of time or not, I mean, there's a, there's a lot of things there that we've talked about, including the decline of um, traditional left wing movements, which I think it's fair to say. You would have a graph for, yes, absolutely. Um, and uh, the question is, can they revive in some in some new kind of form the 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 encroachment on our personal lives in the most profound way of this technology? Can that be rolled back or restrained or controlled in in any way? And if so, how so? Uh, I suppose, really, yeah. any optimism for the future? Uh, well, yeah, there is, and 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 the optimism is 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 completely tied up with the, with the pessimism, right? So so. Um, you could be very cynical about human history and say people only really get to grips with with stuff when they have to. You know, now the times they've had to in the past have been appalling wars. So the, the question is, like, do you have to go through you know the first war and the second world war, for example, to get social democracy, which you get pretty much you know in in most of the West uh, after the second world war? Um, do we have to go through uh, complete social collapse before we get to grips with the stuff that's going on around us and that is 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 so toxic and destructive? It's it's worth saying that uh, the stakes are now so high that um, I think the next decade has to be a decade of very profound change, and it has to be a decade of change that's that's even more profound in a way than the stuff we've been talking about. Right. So so what we're talking about is. Um, you could say that there have been these three great revolutions. Well, there have been two great ones so far. I mean, the Neolithic Revolution, people, you know, moved from hunter, hunter-gatherers to farmers, and the Industrial Revolution, you know, and in a way, even the high-tech stuff that we're seeing is still a kind of outworking of the Industrial Revolution. 
we now need this sort of green revolution. We need a, a, a decarbonized economy. It's, it is as profound in terms of changing the way in which we operate as human beings as those two previous revolutions uh, were, I think. And the fact is that we we either do it or we're completely screwed. You know, so so it's it's not like the previous two. The Neolithic revolution was actually quite strange and, and I think anthropologists still struggle to really explain it because like, people were actually perfectly happy as hunter-gatherers. You know, they were doing fine. There were very few of them but the, like, you don't have a, 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 a particular, you know, need to see the world's population exploding if you're getting on fine. This, mm. you know, so it's actually quite hard to explain why people actually... No, and actually the experiences it. of the people who were yeah. caught up in that revolution were, were really unpleasant. Were horrible, were, were you know, yeah. and, you, and you have to get kings and you have to get, yeah, you yeah. know, all that stuff and you get walled <laughs> in. It's terrible. Um, the Industrial Revolution... Uh, again, people didn't have to do it. Like uh, mm. you could say, you know, uh, yes, if you were to look at it over overall, of course, it hugely increased, um, you know, human potential and 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 made life better for for people. But not immediately. I mean, you know, the people went through pretty horrible stuff. It was not great fun going from your you know, your farm in, 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 in the countryside somewhere to work in a hellish factory. You know, it, it wasn't great. So people didn't have to do it in a sense. Whereas this one, we don't have a choice. Like, so it's, it's, it, it has to be done. It has to be done really quickly. It has to be done in a really very profound way. So I think we're facing a period of a really, really big change. And I think we have no idea how this is going to play out. I, I, I don't think we yet understand what the implications of it might be. What we do know is that we're, we're in a fix, right, which is that we're in a period which, you know, by any objective standards, requires really, really huge international governance, right? Can't be done privately, right? It's, I'm not saying private forces don't, don't have a huge part to play, but it has to be coordinated. It has to be done in a really kind of serious way globally. Um, and we're, we have that need just at the same time as, as belief in governance, belief in institutions, belief in, in global power uh, are, is, is faltering. And so, you know, we're, we're very much in this kind of um, race, I suppose, aren't we? between uh, the need to reestablish some sense that we can govern ourselves and, and, and face this enormous crisis that, that we are facing uh, uh, on the one side and our, our sort of the, the pleasure in destruction, the pleasure in disruption, uh, which seems to be uh, you know, shared by an awful lot of people at, at, at the moment. I'm still fundamentally optimistic about it. I, I think human beings do stuff because they have to, not because they think it's the right thing to do. Finton, happy Christmas. Uh, happy Christmas to you too. <laughs> and that's it for this edition of the podcast. Thanks very much to our producer, Declan Conlon. And remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, on Acast, or any podcast provider. You can also get us at irishtimes.com slash podcasts. Your views are always most welcome. You can mail me at hlinahan at irishtimes.com or you can find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.